I usually say you should save the clap until you decide you like what you heard, right? But I appreciate that ahead of time. I'll take it regardless. And then if you have something to say afterwards, I'll go, hey, you already clapped, so thank you. Uh, no, I have, a, I have a confession to make. Uh, I got really excited when they asked me to be here. Uh, didn't expect uh, this, this opportunity, uh, especially this portion of scripture that we're in. It's uh, one of the most famous in scripture. We'll get into it. But I got so excited, I sat down on my computer about two weeks ago and just started typing, 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 typing about this. The next thing I knew, I had 17 pages of notes. And I made sure that I saved them, and then I auto-saved them, because I always do that. And the next morning, they were gone. And so I had to write a second sermon. Now, obviously, when I heard that this happened to my brother, Charles, uh, I thought, this is too important. I mean, he can say that to the home crowd. I come in and I go, ah, yeah, I lost my sermon. So I kind of went the other way. I decided I don't want to lose a sermon, so I'm not even going to write the sermon. So we'll just see what happens. I live by... I'd rather write none than two. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Now, when we look at Romans chapter 8, it really is an honor to be able to speak on these passages. It's also intimidating because as you've been working through this series and as I've kind of caught up with where Charles and the team have been with you, Paul puts this crescendo on this amazing theology and lifestyle he's been telling us about. You remember that the 1400s, is when we got our chapters and verses. Somebody said, hey, I have an idea when we're sitting around studying scripture, it'd be way easier if we all knew where we were together if we kind of broke this down. But Paul didn't write Romans and go, okay, chapter eight, what do I want to say? Instead, he was just writing a letter to believers. And as the Holy Spirit moved him, Paul was writing about this topic, and he would write about this, and then the Lord would put something else in his mind, and this would lead to that one, uh, and so on, and, and we get these letters. And so Paul is completely connected to the rest of what you've been looking at in chapter eight, and that is that God has a plan. It can't be thwarted. He wants to do good in your life, make you more like his son, Jesus Christ, and there's good he has planned for us in the world. And Paul wants to emphasize that. I think, I think in Paul's mind, he's kind of hearing the critics or he's hearing those that are struggling and they've got these, yeah, but, but Paul, what about? That sounds great, Paul, but have you thought of? And so what he does in this last section of this chapter is he asks these different questions. He poses the questions and then he gives an answer for them. He's kind of predicting where people might respond And he says, yeah, I'm ahead of you guys. And of course, that's because he's led by the Spirit. So we're going to look at these questions that he asks and see what his answers mean and and, and watch this, this final exclamation point on this great truth that God will make good happen according to his will, not ours, not Satan's, not the world's, his. So uh, let me read it and then we'll pray. I'm in uh, chapter 8 and beginning in verse 31. What shall we say then in response to this? What's this? Everything we just talked about. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine or nakedness, danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, you, uh, you penned these amazing words through your servant, Paul because they're true. And so as we explore them today, would you apply them with your Holy Spirit through your authority into each and every life here, the Quakertown campus, even those who would watch this video at a future time. God, I don't want to stand in the way of what you're doing, so help me to say the things I should say, not say the things that I shouldn't. Would you guide and guard our hearts and minds as we look into your word? Amen. So Paul says, he starts this section with, and what what shall we say then in response to this? And I kind of already said in the introduction, response to what? The response to this idea that God is going to make us into his likeness. He is going to do his will. Uh, He will not be thwarted. He's going to give us a future in him. He's given his son to the world so that even beyond human history, we are secure in his plans for our future. He says, so, so what do we say? And this is where he starts asking some of these questions. He says, uh, right there in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I think Paul is asking a rhetorical question. He's trying to remind his readers and us, uh, you know, at, at that time and then here and all through human history that read this, that God is somebody who can't be thwarted. If he's with us, you can't name somebody or something that can stand against us. They might try. It's not going to work. And through the history of humankind, we've watched God do that. I have a feeling that as Paul is writing that, in his mind, he's probably thinking through places, uh, stories like Moses in the Red Sea, where after 400 years of slavery, uh, from the, the then-known world power, the, only, the biggest world power, the Egyptians, God rescues him through these miraculous signs, and ultimately, uh, he takes them through the Red Sea, and it says the next morning, they watched the bodies of the Egyptians, the greatest army in the world at the time, just washing up on shore. You're going, see? (laughs) Human armies are nothing. They can't stand against God. He, He may be thinking about the book of Job, where Job is having questions. He's having these conversations with three friends, and a fourth joins them, and he's going through all this misery and, and wondering, God, are, are you really there? What, what are you doing? What's your plan? And God finally says, hey, hey, Job, let me just kind of slip my resume on your desk. And in chapter 38 and 39 and 40 and 41, it's like God's resume. I call them the kick-butt chapters of the Bible because God just sits there while he's sharing who he is that somebody might stand against, as Paul references. He says, hey, Job, were you there when I measured the earth's foundation? Are you the one that, uh, that binds the constellations and makes them stay right where they are? Have you been in the storehouses of the rain? Have you been where I keep the snow and hail in times for times of uh, storms? 
Do the lightning bolts report to you and say, here we are, where should we go, sir? And he goes on and on and on. And Job kind of goes, I think I was a little foolish. (laughs) When I look at your greatness, God, and who you are, who would I put up against you? And Paul kind of gives us this picture. Who can stand against us if God is for us? And the answer is no one. That's right, no one. So, so he, he starts building this, you know, you, you can't really rebut the fact that God is on the move and he's going to make things happen uh, because he can't be stopped. Uh, then he says this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, you know, you might think that resources are in the way of what God is doing. You might say, yeah, you know, I know God wants to accomplish some great stuff, but he's not going to do it through me because I don't even have a a dependable car. I've got medical bills that you can't imagine, Paul. And Paul says, resources? God gave us everything, even to the point of giving us his own son. What more would he withhold from us? You understand that? The, the weight of that statement, imagine a billionaire. He's just got a, a good billionaire, right? You know, a very generous billionaire. Sometimes we think, oh, billionaire. <laughs> imagine this billionaire, and he's got this son, right? And he's put money away so that his son can have any, go to any college he wants. And when his son got into art, he, he got him an art tutor so he could be the best that, that he could be. And then, you know, when he was into sports, he got him a coach. And when he struggled in school, he got him a tutor. You know, and he's given him clothes that work. And when he wanted a car or needed a car or whatever, he got him that. And they're at the store one day, and the son says, Dad, could I borrow 20 bucks? <laughs> like, why would the father withhold 20 bucks? That's what you're asking for? I've done all this for you. $20 is a pittance. It's nothing. God, who's rich in everything, he created it all, has the resources that we need and they're at our disposal. Sometimes we, uh, we either don't trust him for it or we're not looking for it or we're using our own means. One of my favorite stories on this subject is about a little girl named Jenny. I told it in the first service again. My wife didn't know that I was telling it. She goes, I hate it when you tell that story. I'm like, what? She goes, I cry every time. And then in my home church, they always go, tell us a story that we're going to cry about. If you don't, let us know. So you may cry. Fair warning. Quaker Town, you may cry. Uh, no, there's a little girl named Jenny, and uh, she goes to the store with her mom. It's like a trinket store or a general store or something, and she sees behind the glass uh, this pearl necklace. You know, it's the plastic kind that turns your neck green after a couple weeks. It's a few bucks. And uh, she says, Mom, can I get that? And she says, why don't you do some chores and earn it? So Jenny goes home, and for the next few weeks, next few months, she goes to the neighbors. Can I rake your leaves for a quarter or a dime? Can I... She watches her little brother. She does all these things. She saves up her quarters and her 75 cents or dimes or nickels. She eventually has a few dollars to go buy this. And she is so proud of this necklace. She wears it everywhere. At night, she puts it in the, uh, you know, in the little cheap case it came with. Puts it on first thing in the morning. And one night, her dad, who regularly came in and read stories, prayed with her, says, Jenny, do you love me? And he, she says, oh, dad, you know I love you. He says, can I have your pearl necklace? She goes, oh, Dad, you can have my Barbie, but don't take my pearl necklace. 
And she goes, Dad says, that's okay. I love you, Jenny. Kisses her, goes to sleep, and goes out. A couple nights later, they're doing their regular thing, and he says, Jenny, do you love me? Oh, Dad, you know I love you. Can I have your pearl necklace, Jenny? Dad, not my necklace. Take my, po- my toy pony. Anything but my necklace, Dad. And this goes on a few times, and one night, Dad comes in the bedroom, and te- Jenny is just tears, just tears. Her face swollen, tissues, neck is wet on her nightgown, and she's just trembling. And her dad says, what's wrong, Jenny? And with a shaking hand, she puts her palm out, and she has the pearl necklace there. Her dad takes it, reaches in his pocket, and pulls out a real pearl necklace strand and says, this is for you. God has so much for us. It's not a health and wealth gospel. It's not a name it and claim it. But God has all the resources in the world. And sometimes we don't believe it for him. We don't ask four times in Scripture. Jesus says, you have not because you don't ask. Yeah, you haven't asked. Or he says, ask for anything in my name, and I'll give it to you. Paul says, God's got plans for you. God loves you. He wants to do good in the world through you. And resources aren't an issue. He even gave us his son. What else would he withhold? Sometimes he's waiting for us to grab hold of that in faith. Sometimes he just lavishes it on there. That's between him and you and how he does his things. But uh, he says, what's our first response? Man, you can't stop God. (laughs) He is in charge, and and he can't be stopped. He says, resources, not an issue. What, What would God withhold from us? And then he has this interesting thought. He asks this question. He's talking about, kind of bragging about God and stuff. And then he says in verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, he came back to life. He's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul is kind of, I think he's thinking that there's some people that are going to go, yeah, I tried to do good. But Paul, um, that person over there says, I'm doing it for a greedy motive. But Paul, um, that person over there says that it'll never happen. They already tried it. But somebody I really trust says that maybe, maybe I've sinned too much, and so I can't be used by God. Paul says, who condemns? Who's the accuser? God's the one sitting on the throne. He's the one that decides who's guilty, who's not guilty. He's the one with the gavel. He hands out the punishment. And you know who's standing next to him? Jesus Christ, who not only died for our sins, but rose again. And I just picture it like this, whether it's like Job chapter 1 and 2, where Satan actually comes into heaven. We know the the word of God tells us he's the accuser. That he accuses the church and he points and looks and this is what they do wrong and look, they're not worthy of what you're doing. And in, in Job chapter one and two, he comes before God and he's pointing out Job. So whether he continues to do that for real or metaphorically, it doesn't matter. I, I see this image of, of Satan coming into the throne room and looking down and going, hey, look at your daughter over here, God. See, she's still got this addiction and she's supposedly, you're going to do great things for her. And Jesus, is, Jesus looks at God and he goes, yeah, 
I paid for her, taken care of God, and Satan's got no argument. And then he wants to point out, yeah, see him over there? You're going to do great things through him? You really are going to change the world through him? Look at his issues. He can't even control his mouth or his money. Doesn't even attend church every week. Left early a few weeks ago to go to a Super Bowl party. I know I caught some of you. Maybe that was last year, right? That was last year in Philadelphia. No, but Jesus just looks and goes, I paid for that, redeemed, belongs to me. No shame, no sin, no condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Do we make mistakes? Yes. Are there consequences? Sure. But when Satan tries to accuse and say, God can't do things through you, you say, shut up. That's just not true. I have one who beat you. Satan's best trick is death, right? And Jesus said, yeah, I beat that one in just three days. And really, I could have done it sooner, but I like drama. (laughs) Set this baby up. You thought you won. You know, Satan's got nothing. But you know, Satan's not the only one that accuses us. You know who accuses us as well? The church, but that's a different sermon. Ourselves. We tend to point the finger at ourselves and say, I'm no good. I can't. Paul tells us, nope, that's paid for too. Live in the truth that God loves you. Jesus paid for it all. Is there something to correct in your life? Probably. I got like one or two things maybe. Don't ask my wife. She likes add three zeros to the end of your one or two and a couple commas in there. No, there's always stuff to work on. There's always stuff to work on. The Spirit's going to remind us how to live better for him. But if you're focusing on your weakness, your sin, and these areas where you fall down, can I beg you to focus on the love of God who says Jesus paid it all and boots Satan out and says there's no room for you or for him or anybody else to be the accuser. God is the judge, and he says free available, worthy, son, daughter, beloved. And we sometimes need to live in that for God to move forward, move us forward. We, we get stuck ourselves. And then here's, here's the crescendo of the crescendo. Um, this is where the whole thing, and I don't know if you can do that. Nobody corrected me after the, no, nobody on the worship team said you can't have a crescendo on a crescendo, so I'm just going to keep going with it. I think Paul is trying to put this crescendo on this whole idea that he, God is going to make good things happen through us and for us and for him, and then he writes this whole thing, and he, and he tries to get rid of people, not get rid of, but get rid of the arguments that people might have, or they go, yeah, but what about this? What about that? I don't have the resources. Um, you know, what if somebody accuses me or I accuse myself? What if I'm not worthy? Uh, what if there's somebody bigger than God? You know, he, he goes through these things, but then I think he hits where humans probably really struggle the most. And he asks this question uh, in verse uh, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Ever feel like maybe God doesn't love you for something you did or didn't do? Ever look at the life of somebody else who seems to have way more blessing and go, where are you, God? How come he or she gets that? You clearly don't love me, at least not as much as you love them. 
or we look at our sin that we just talked about or something that we just struggle with and we know it's wrong, but we keep falling into it and we go, there's no way God can love me. Paul says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And it's a rhetorical question, but in case that you, you don't get that or in case you go, I don't know if that's rhetorical, I'm going to start thinking of a list of people or things. He says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? He lists a whole bunch of these difficulties. Of that list, I would pick nakedness because I've been naked, as I imagine most of you have, and I was like, I'll take that list for my hardship. Uh, but I don't want persecution. <laughs> I don't want danger. I definitely want, don't want sword. I like eating, so I don't want famine. But for each person through history and even now, we have these different hardships. Some of you go, none of those are on the list for me. Paul, I just can't pay my bill. Paul, I'm going through a sickness and the medical bills are overwhelming. Paul, I'm not persecuted or anything. I'm just, I just can't get rid of this belaboring sin in my life. There's no way God can love me. And I think what Paul is trying to build is he's telling us, he's speaking to human, humans who tend to this is for sure true in our society today. We tend to let emotions be our reality. Facts are created by how we feel. And it's just not true. Emotions are an indicator of reality. Emotions tell us something's wrong. I'm happy, or tell us what's going on. It doesn't have to be wrong. I'm happy, hey, my team scored a touchdown. I feel elated, ah, I got a raise. I feel sad, somebody's sick in my life. I feel devastated, you know, this relationship broke down. I feel like not moving forward, somebody close to me just died and I'll never get to talk to them again outside of eternity. Emotions tell us there's something going on, but they don't determine what's going on. Emotions are an indicator of reality, they don't determine it. And what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter what you're going through, you may not feel loved by God, either because of something you've done or something you feel like he hasn't done for you. You're suffering in a way that you feel God should do something about this, he must not love me. Paul goes, uh-uh, not true at all. None of that, none of your circumstances can separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You ever find yourself saying, God, are you there? He goes, yep. No matter whether you feel like I'm here or not, I am with you and you cannot be loved any less by me. You can't be loved any less by God. Paul, being a good rabbi, throws in some Old Testament scripture to bring in. That's, that's the stuff that was written hundreds of years before Paul. He says, as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. He goes, hey, Psalm 44, you guys are familiar with that? See, God knew even back then, maybe as much as a couple thousand years ago, God knew that we would be in front of you, suffering, being thrown in jail, being whipped, beaten by rods, and so on. So this isn't a surprise. You and your emotions are surprised at this circumstance. Not God. He wrote about this hundreds of years ago. Not surprised, still loves you, can't be separated from that love. Then he says, no, in verse 37, no, in all these things, doesn't matter what it is, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, and he goes on. Think about this, death or life, he's got this list. And I think Paul's just trying to get more and more and more ridiculous. He's just kind of going, okay, what else are they going to say? What else are they going to say? What else are they going to say? <laughs> They're going to bring up this, that. Oh, yeah, Paul, what if I die? Maybe because maybe I died, I didn't get a full life. What about the nine-year-old in Canada that we buried? He didn't get a full life. So how can he say God loved him? Well, you could go to Isaiah 57, 1 and 2 that says, do you realize that sometimes God takes people from the planet because this world is so evil, he's sparing them from that? Oh. Oh, so maybe not every death is God being mean. Instead, he's sparing some from a life of what this world has to offer. Oh, yeah, okay, I got you on that one, Paul. What about life? My life's really hard. I've got this medical issue. Uh, I was raised by parents who treated me wrong. I didn't even have parents. I fell in love with this person, and they turned out to be a creep. No, worse than a creep. I could handle a creep, Paul. This person's just bad news in my life, in the life of my kids. So life, yeah, I think God's kind of in my life. You know, by keeping me alive, keeping me here. Maybe, maybe he doesn't love me. But then we go to where Paul writes in, in Philippians 1, 2, and 3. He goes, if I die, yep, that's gain. But to live is Christ. I get to be involved in the movement of God on this planet. I get to make a difference no matter what shame I have in my past, no matter what difficulty he just talked about. Life can't separate me from the love of God. In fact, in fact, life and death prove that God loves me. So he's like, next, who else? Anybody else? Anybody else want to argue with this truth that you can't be separated? And uh, so he's like, not life, not death. And he says, angels or demons. People go, oh, yeah, angels and demons, they're pretty strong. He goes, no, I got those guys covered too. Probably tells a story of defeating the prince of Persia uh, or, or even just going straight to Satan himself. <laughs> Christ was crucified, came back to life. The head of the demons has been defeated. The minions, who are they? I already beat their boss. And so angels, demons, supernatural beings, they can't do anything. And he says, the present nor the future. It's interesting he lists those. Why would I think that the present or the future can separate me from the love of God? Well, we go right back to what we talked about a moment ago. There's sometimes when the, what we're dealing with right now in the current situation, current reality, we go, there's no way God can love me because of this, something I've done, something I think God should do. He goes, nope, that present, that can't. What about the future? What, what if in the future I do this? Will God love me then? What if in the future it doesn't turn out the way I want it to be? Will that matter? Nope, present, future, cannot change. God's love for you. You cannot be separated from his love through Christ. And then he hits this one. Everyone's got a pair. Life, death, angels, demons, present, future. But he has this one that's just all by itself. Nor any powers. There's no power. There's no power of addiction. There's no power of authority. I can see somebody going, Paul, Paul, I get what you're saying. He can do damage on Satan and his kingdom. He can control wind. He can do all this stuff. But Paul, you don't know my boss. My boss is a middle manager. She's got power. She could fire me. And then the, the president above her of our organization, man, 
They could give me the boot. They could put something in my resume or in my file that would make it so I can't get a job anywhere in the area. And I think Paul's going, really? A middle manager? The God who told the ocean, you stay right there. You will go no further than this. The God that parted the Red Sea, the God that in a word spoke everything to existence is going to be thwarted by your boss, your superintendent. There's a debate if you study in the Greek. Now, there does seem to be one power God can't do anything about, and that's that person who chooses to do 21 or 22 items in the 20 or less aisle. He goes, yeah, I can't do anything about that, but that's why I gave you patience. Every other power on the planet, they just, there's signs everywhere. You can't miss it. We know this is what you're supposed to do, but we just can't stop them from doing that. So uh, obviously I joke to, to make a point. There's no power on the planet that can separate you from the love of God. Then he says height nor depth. I think he's just getting ridiculous. What else can I put down? Timothy, what else should I put down? What else? What are people going to think of? Huh? Yeah, you can't be too tall. You can't be too short. You can't go on a mountain. You can't go in the ocean. You can't. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, Paul. Death, life, height, depth. And then he says anything else in all creation. Nothing in all creation. Last question. What is created? Everything except God himself. He brought it all into fruition. He made it all. And Paul says he's got control of it all. So nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants to do amazing things for you, for you, for you, anybody, people listening to this later, God wants to do amazing things to change this world through you, and he can't be thwarted because he's God, because he's got the resources, because nobody can point the finger at you, and because it doesn't matter what, he loves you. God, thanks. Would you help us to live this today, tomorrow, next week for the rest of our time on the planet. Would you help us to live in this truth? And God, if there are people in the sound of my voice that need to break through something, the truth that they heard this morning is going to give them the freedom that you promised. You said the truth sets you free. Then would you break through that falsehood, break through that, that bad thinking with the truth of Romans 8, 31 to 39 and show them who you are for your glory for our good, for the good of the world. Amen.